Welcome to Bethlehem Church Online. I'm Pastor Matt. I'm so excited that you decided to join us for worship today. I hope the singing and preaching of God's Word is uplifting and it gives you just what you need. I'm not sure where you are in your relationship or your walk with the Lord, uh, but I want today to be a blessing. I want you to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that today is encouraging and that it's just what you need. If it's your first time, make sure to click the link in the post and fill out that form. We have a free gift for you following today's service. Thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the service. So, and, and I just want to like have a little chat with you. This, look, this new series, if, if we're faithful to the Lord, and, and, and I promise if you're faithful to listening to the messages, maybe when you're not here, staying in it, let's go on this journey together. You all right? <laughs> let's go on this journey together. I promise you, you will have a better, fuller understanding of what the Lord is trying to tell you through Scripture. If we approach the Bible um, like every book is Proverbs, you know what I mean? Like every book is just... Uh, some verses for us to read and glean what's there on the surface. When we get to the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, all that, all those things. Those are good principles to live by, right? Yeah, okay, I get it. Don't steal, don't kill people. <laughs> and those are principles that are pretty universal, and they're there and they're on the surface. But unfortunately, like what we do as an overall, as a whole, and, and I say this because this is how I lived for years and years. I took scripture for what it was, what was being handed to me by the church that I grew up in and their slant. And, and I was viewing it and perceiving it through Western eyes. That's what we are, we're Westerners. And we think about our lives and we think about our, our culture and then we just apply the Bible to that and we view it through that lens and we walk away with what we walk away with. And that's not entirely bad but it's not the design. How do we know that? Because God chose to step out of time and into time at a specific time period and at a specific place, the ancient Near East. And so when we see that God chose that time period and that time, and he says, this is how I want to unveil who I am, we should take note and do our best. And there's never been more resources about scripture and ancient Near East. How many are already cold? Y'all are nervous about the fans. I see it. You're nervous about the fans. Can we put the fans on medium? Like maybe like two instead of three. I don't know if Mike heard me out there. Uh, okay, I think they got it. Um, but but the, the point is, is the... The ancient Near East, that culture, there is so much available to us today as to what that culture was like and what they believed. So it's really, there's really no excuse for ignorance. And as far as a church that is using the Bible as leverage for their own good, like that's not us. Like this was more like, we're gonna start like a backyard Bible study for misfits and you have Bethlehem Church. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Sarah and I were like, we don't wanna do the whole big organized church thing. The Lord has blessed us. The Lord has, has grown. Sarah, can, can you fix the fans? 
inside there. Go inside the door. Sorry. Up on the left, there's a remote up on the wall. Put it on like number two. Money. Thank you. All right. Yeah. All right. Everybody relax. It's not going to be too cold. All right. Now we can move on. <laughs> so um, there's really not, there, there's no agenda. And that's why we say like simply Jesus. I'm growing with you. You're just getting the flow over from my Bible study. And I really legitimately believe like that the gospel is the answer for humankind. Like for our area, for our community, Jesus is the answer. And so we're doing our best to represent the Jesus of the Bible and show that to our community, our family, our loved ones, our friends, those who we encounter, who the Lord brings across our paths. And, and, and that is the answer. That's the only thing that matters. Yes, there are churches that are agenda-driven. Yes, at some point when you've walked through or you've been through church hurt, some have, some haven't, we have, you can kind of like see it and smell it once you've been hurt by it a mile away. And you're like, mm-mm, I can see the agenda. I can see the like, you know, you can see it. You can sense it. You can feel it. That's not what we're all about. As bare as we can get the text, stripping away as much of the systems that man has created, some of them good systems, some of them bad, so that we can just see what's for us, what is there, so we can reveal the God of the Bible. Here's what I'm here to tell you. It is one, like the Bible Project says, it is one connected, unified story. It is. And this series, we've not, I don't know, I haven't thought through, I mean, we've done small Old Testament books, but we have not embarked on something like this at our church yet. And I feel like we're ready. Amen. Answer that phone call, whoever it is. Uh, let's, be, let's put our phones on silent. But the, the approach for this, I, I think, will be pivotal for us. I think it will shape the way, look, if you're coming from 30, 40 years of following the Lord and you've got everything in a system, right? And you, you know how you view the Bible. I would encourage you, hold it loosely. See what the Lord does through this. And if you're brand new, just thank the Lord because <laughs> you don't have all the baggage that everybody else has coming, that they're bringing from agenda-driven preaching for years and years and years. And, and for some of you, like, why are you beating this drum, Pastor Matt? It's because that's where I come from. You know, that's my personal testimony. But once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> once you start perceiving, like, good to see you guys. Once you start, like, putting things together, it's like, oh, my goodness. You, you can't unsee the thing. So uh, I hope to disrupt a little bit of that. It's probably going to take me, this is my guess, it's probably going to take me three weeks just to introduce the Exodus story. It's probably going to take me three sermons. This one and probably two more on the life of Abraham, and then we're going to dive in. But stay with me. If I could encourage, and, and it, it maybe halfway through, you're going to be like, what is this, some kind of theology class? Just trust me. Go along for the ride. It's meaningful. You're going to see some things. I saw some things. None of what I'm saying is new. I want to stress that. It's not new. It's been there for a long time. 
a lot of things biblical scholars talk about that never make its way to the pulpit. And so like, I, I wanna try and do my best to give you the perspective of scripture that I'm seeing and that the Lord's leading me into. Uh, how many, when I say Exodus or the book of Exodus, something comes to mind? What comes to mind? Ten Commandments, Moses. Anything else? Slavery, Ten Commandments. Wandering. Anything else? These are all, these are all good. How many, when I say Exodus, nothing comes to your mind? That's totally fine. Thank you for being honest. All right, that's cool. Uh, how many know who, mo- leaving Egypt, the Exodus? How many know, um, how many know the biblical character of Moses? Most of us? All right, cool. How many don't know the biblical character of Moses? Okay, a few. Um, all right, sweet. Just wanted to kind of see the, the lay of the land here. So, once again, I'm trying to reveal or share, show you some of the patterns that are in Scripture. Um, I, I, said, I said it this way this morning. You know, when I have, uh, you know, say my son is, not that my son ever, not that I ever have to tell him multiple times to do something. <laughs> ever. <laughs> He's gotten his little rhythm and routine of coming with me on Sunday mornings. That's cool. Dad, wake me up. I'm like, all right, cool. Sure love it. Man, they get big quick, don't they? Just like blink of an eye. I know I keep saying it. My oldest has braces. It's crazy. That child is just shooting up out of nowhere. I think she's got a history or a history. I think she's got a career future in the WNBA. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Hopefully we can keep her out of Russia. Anyway, but uh, so anyway, but um, but um, so if I tell my son, hey, you know, don't stick your finger in a light socket, even though at this point he's old enough, I just let him do it. It'd be funny. <laughs> don't stick your finger in the light socket. He'd be like, okay, and does it again. Don't stick your finger in the light socket. And everybody knows the decibel changes, right? You go up 10 dB each time. Level three. Don't stick your finger in the light socket. Hey, do you, you hear what I'm telling you? You say the first time, really between one and two is, that's the testing ground, you know? Is he serious? Can I just go on and do, will dad just keep looking at his phone, right? Uh, but if I'm like, hey, no, second time. If I say something three times, we're going to start including middle names. You know what I mean? We're going to start including middle names. The belt is going to come off. You know what I mean? I'm old school. Man, you guys, easy. (laughs) I got whipped with a belt. I don't spank my kids with a belt. But how many got spanked with a belt? Okay, what's, I don't know why y'all were judging me so harshly. I could hear it. I could sense the judgment, the furrowed brows. (laughs) There was like some kind of like reel on Instagram. This guy does reels and he was like, my mom, uh, right after she got done beating me in the back of the church, and the mom, the video, she was like praising the Lord, and he was like in the back like this. <laughs> I was like, man, never a true or real. Like I've, one time, my mom yanked me out of the second row, and took me to the fellowship hall and wore my butt out, brought me all the way back in, set me, and went right back to her seat. I mean, that's what I come from. You know what I mean? 
And the funny thing was, many of you have heard this story before, she borrowed a deacon's belt on the way out the back. Can I have your belt? Yes, ma'am, you may. <laughs> Took his belt off and handed it to my mom. Like, that's the generation I come from. My parents were old school. So anyway, uh, when I tell my son multiple times, like he knows the intensity changes, he needs to listen. He needs to understand. There's a difference between something that's been said once and something that's been said three, four, five times. Here's what we miss in Scripture. Most of the stories I'm learning and I'm discovering are all reenactments. Most of the stories of the Bible are the same story telling us the same thing over and over and over again. It's the same covenant. It's the same theme. It's the same God. But many of us read all these different stories, and because we haven't maybe watched the Bible Project or whatever, we've not connected them, so therefore, we don't hear God saying our name over and over and over again. We just hear the Lord saying our name at different times in different places. And so, I want us to see the themes that the Lord is loudly proclaiming from Scripture over and over and over again so that we can heed the warning, so that we can understand it, so that we can set things in order in our lives. How many want to hear the voice of the Lord? Yeah. And, and it's the, the same thing, like, look, when we get to heaven, right, when we reach the afterlife, whatever that looks like, uh, and however the Lord has that set up, when we pass from death to life, it, it shouldn't be a, a huge question mark. We should know kind of the setup, right? But the things that we argue and fuss over are really the things that don't matter. The things that the Lord's not really worried about. So anyway, this, this study, this book, starting the book of Exodus, is gonna be a journey. Uh, and hopefully a journey that leads us all closer to Jesus, and we start seeing a picture. So the first three weeks of this series, don't expect to be in Exodus too much. Uh, we're laying the groundwork to get there. Uh, it's a part of a larger five-volume series, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Penta Five, the Pentateuch. Uh, many people believe that Moses wrote it. Uh, I, I would see and have seen just through some of my studies that Moses delegated a lot. Right? He delegated, even in some of the scriptures, throughout the Pentateuch, we find that Joshua had a hand in the Pentateuch in writing. Issachar had a hand in writing in the Pentateuch. Uh, and various scribes were tasked with the, uh, the job of recording events from the Pentateuch. So it's not like, for us to say, yeah, Moses wrote it, is, is a little vague. You know, For us to say that Moses was in charge of, Moses um, oversaw the effort, approved. I think that's a little bit more accurate. Uh, and then understanding that this work has been, altered is the wrong word, but it's been added to, it's been adjusted, scribes through, throughout the years, um, you know, really put this thing in, in perspective uh, for us. And they're trying to share with us a message, a message of deliverance, a theme, right, that they are trying to, to share. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult because you have some people, and, and I experienced this in my upbringing, my church, they went, they viewed Israel from this like strange perspective. You know, it was like there's Israel and Israel is 
on its own island of how God deals with them. And then there's the church. I don't really see that. I see a unified story. I see where we are absolutely connected to them. And I think that we're going to see that. And I also don't see the Lord doing away with them. Once again, the Bible doesn't have to fit in your theological system perfectly. And and if people strive to force the Bible into their theological system, what they have done is they've become obsessed with their theological system instead of the Bible. And, And where I'm at is I don't really care about theological systems anymore. And that's usually like what pastors, you know, when pastors get together, you know, that's usually what people talk about is their theological systems and how they interpret the Bible. And this is the conversation that happens, right? Apart from regular church folk, we talk about how we interpret the Bible. And I'm just like kind of done with that. You know what I mean? Like I've gone through those, those seasons of saying I'm a this, I'm a that. I just want to like be a Christian. I just want to read the Bible I just want what the Lord has for me out of it. It doesn't have to fit a certain mold. I'm okay with being alone in that, you know, with not necessarily having to fit or ascribe to a certain theological system. I think that there are good parts about a lot of them, but it might not be that one of them, and it, it most certainly is the case, has the answers to them all. So... Uh, As we embark on this, though, as we take this journey together, what I think we're going to see is a story that says the same thing, adds a little bit to it, gives us a broader perspective, and continues to layer one thing on another on another. And so that's what I want to do. There are books, there are are podcasts, things that you'll hear me talk about um, in here. Feel free. Go jump in. Uh, nothing of what I'm saying is um, specific to me. It's, it's other research uh, that I'm regurgitating to you, except the application. I'll, I'll, most of my applications are all from me and how I'm interpreting or reading what it is that I'm, how I've put things together for our church. So the application is original, uh, but everything else is just a compiling of research. So when I talk about a book, feel free to jump into that book. If you download the notes on the program, my sources are cited. So get in there, have a time, study as much as you want. Now, let's jump in. So some of the groundwork here is coming from Exodus, Old and New, a biblical theology of redemption. There are three major Exodus movements in Scripture. We're painting a picture here. Three major Exodus movements in in Scripture. One, the historical Exodus out of Egypt, and many of you mentioned that. Two, the prophesied second exodus. And three, the new exodus accomplished by Jesus Christ. Major themes of the historical exodus, like God's signs and wonders, Passover, mediation of Moses, since in various ways, these will feed into the second two parts. We must first see, however, the backdrop for the exodus story is Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 contains the reason for the need of the Exodus. Before we dive into this book, the Exodus, exiting, leaving, we have to first figure out how we got there and why they were there and why they were in the position that they were in. Before you can figure out, how do I get out of this mess that I'm in 
Anybody in a mess want to testify, right? Before you can figure out, how do I get out of this mess? First, ask ask yourself. First, ask yourself. My mouth is not working. Cough drop needs to kick in. First, ask yourself, why did you get there? Why are you in the situation that you're in that you're asking to be bailed out? See what I mean? That's what we're doing. We must first see this backdrop. So in the first 11 chapters, here's what it is. Here's the substance of what has created this situation. The first thing, the creation account. Humanity is to exist in the presence of God forever. Why is... um, Why is the author narrating this story in the way that he is? Why is he telling us these things? What is he trying to reveal? And many of us look at Genesis, and I'm going to try not to look back at Cody because he's going to be smirking at me the whole time. Many of us look at this book as like a science book. This is my science textbook, and this tells me how everything got here. And if we could just understand that the Bible has all the answers for our science book, then the world would be much smarter. That's not the intent. It's really not. And I hate to burst your creation bubble, (laughs) but it's the point is not to convey to you science and how uh, uh, it's not necessarily a history or an origin of where everything came from more than it is an origin of how everything works. Why do I know that? Because God is giving this to the ancient Near East. He's giving this to them in Moses' days, in Moses' ways to steal a Scott McKnight quote. And, And he's saying, like, this is how everything is supposed to work. Do you think they had all the, oh, get your science textbooks out and compare uh, what you're learning in school, boys and girls in the ancient Near East, with what the creation account is? Do you think that's what God wanted them to do? No. God knew what they believed. God knew the extent of their knowledge. They thought the earth was what? And if you still think that, there's the door. (laughs) Anyway. The conspiracy, the the tinfoily hat starts coming up. It's all a conspiracy. <laughs> Look, I, whatever. I'm just teasing, poking, making fun. I really, if if you believe the Earth is flat, you're welcome to stay here. It's all good. <laughs> I don't care. But the point, my point is, is what they believed, what they understood, is what's necessary for us to understand. For us to take the Bible and say, well, this is what makes sense according to our day. Well, God didn't choose your day to reveal himself. God chose the ancient Near East and that context for a specific reason. So it's vitally important for us to know why he staged this story and the author and the narrator staged this story in Egypt and what they believed about it. So the creation account, we see some of this is going to mess you up a little bit. It's okay. Take a deep breath, breathe through it, but it's a part of the backdrop. Number two, the earth is the home or the temple where we rest and live in community with Yahweh. What we have to understand, what we have to understand is it's 1159 and I'm not getting through this material this morning. That's what we have to understand. Anyway, (laughs) the earth was created and uh, we know that God created the, the world, the earth, 
But the point is the origin of functions. What the narrator, what the writer is trying to do in this creation song in the Genesis account is explain to us how God wants to dwell with us. It's more about a God in heaven saying, I'm creating a temple. Anytime you hear garden language or mountaintop language, in the ancient Near East, they were talking about a place where the gods hang out. Gardens, temple, it's all, gardens and mountaintop, mountaintops are temple language. That's temple worship language. If, if they talked about a place where there was a garden, the common folk would understand that that is the place where the gods dwell. They didn't have that. It's not like you and I have gardens, right? It's not the same. Oh, they all had gardens. They grew their own maters. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> That's not what the Bible's saying. It's saying gardens were the places where the gods met and dwelt. And so when you have in the ancient Near East, this system, this pantheon of gods, they dwell in the mountaintops. They, the garden of the gods, they have those places where they hang out. And when you have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, onto the scene comes a God, comes a supreme being, Yahweh, the God that is above all the other gods. And what he creates is a temple, is a garden where he dwells with men. It's mind-blowing. It's different. I'm spitting on my glasses. I'm getting excited already. This is the backdrop. Why is this important? It's important because in ancient Near East, the commoners did not go to the gardens. The commoners did not reach the mountaintops where the gods were. There was a separation. They would sacrifice. They would give to appease the gods. The elements of water, the elements of food and famine and all the things of the land that they saw as something that the gods had control over, they would try to give to appease. But our God said, I've created it for your good. The difference between that pantheon and our God is our God says, the earth is my cosmic temple where I choose to walk with you, where I choose to have a personal relationship with you because you were created in my image. This was entirely in conflict with Egypt's point of view. We, it's not about arguing a six-day creation. It's about seeing a creation song that the ancient Near East said, do you understand that the real God, the almighty God, is not one that takes from you, but is one that provides for you? This is the picture. This is the backdrop. Before we can talk about the characters in the stage of Exodus, we must first build the stage. We must first craft the backdrop, and that is Genesis 1 through 11. So we see God's earth is his cosmic temple, the Garden of Eden. All that language is God saying it's the first temple. It's where I will indwell. Same language that would connect us to being the temple or the garden where the Holy Spirit communes with us. The next thing we see in the first 11 chapters is the expulsion from the garden, humanity being sentenced to exile. That's the backdrop for the story of Exodus. Why were they uh, leaving this place? They were leaving this place because they were in exile. 
What was the first step of that? The fall. The second thing that we see contributing to that exile is the sons of God incident in Genesis 6. The third thing that we see is the Tower of Babel incident where humanity collectively decided to build an altar or building to the Tower of Babylon or Babel. All three of these things we're gonna talk about this morning. I'm not really getting into the meat of even the life of Abraham. We're leading up to that. Once again, you gotta come each week and we'll go through this thing together. It's a lot to cover, but why, why would we study why we have to leave if we don't know why we are there? So let's look at these three things. A deeper look into the narrative. This is a little bit of, this is a little teaser, right, of what's coming. A deeper look into the narrative is to see creation as an opposing narrative from the Egyptian gods right out of the gate. This is a fun fact. Where, where Egypt saw the waters as a place of chaos and death, that their sun god Ra would battle with daily. In other words, if the sun rose from the chaotic waters and then it went what? Down over the chaotic waters. It was a sign of him battling. He would win the battle and then what? Lose the battle. In ancient Near East, these waters were uh, known as or thought as chaos. When, when this term um, water or the abyss of that that was like, think about it. It's for them, it's the unknown. Water is the uncharted territory that they, they would succumb to. If the earth is flat and they go down into the deep, I mean, it is essentially the watery chaos of death. Not to mention their cousin getting pulled into the Nile by a crocodile the week before, right? <laughs> the water is like the, the chaos. So they look at water as something that we fear, something that we feed into. That is death. That is the abyss. It is something that the gods have to conquer, the abyss. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the what? The waters. The story of Egypt is, that's the abyss, that's the unknown, that's the sea monster. There's a connection between uh, this dragon, this abyss, this enemy of the waters. And so when the creation account happens, what does the Spirit of God do immediately? He tames the waters. They're looking at it as something that is untamable, that their God has to do. And the children of Israel say, our God controls the waters. See the difference? Then the significance of us seeing the reed or Red Sea parting, the waters parting, and they literally walk through death into what? Life. They leave the exile that they are in, and through Jesus Christ, we all are dead, buried with Christ, and then made to be what? Alive. It's a reenactment of the resurrection. The Lord, the Lord tames the waters. Yahweh has complete control over it from the beginning. We're fixated on water, separating how God created the world. For the ancient Near East, that's what they were scared of and God tamed it. For the Egyptian pantheon, as their gods go to battle with it, Yahweh has complete control over it. And he proves that. Let's keep going. What I want you to see is that Exodus is a continuation of the creation account. Y'all are in full slumber. 
If you got a piece of candy, pull it out, put it in, get the sugar hit. If you're in the fast with me, it is what it is. You know what I mean? Uh, it's coming. I, I promise you, there's a, a neat little hook at the end. Uh, but we must do the good work of studying scripture together. All right? Genesis 1.28, it says this, God blessed them and God said unto them, remember, after God tamed uh, the, the chaos, water, monster, dragon, right? And, and God tamed the earth and created this garden, this cosmic temple. After he finished it, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God gave them that command, right? We, we know that. Exodus chapter one, verse seven, but the Israelites were fruitful increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Exodus is a continuation of the creation story, and they are doing exactly what God commanded them to do. It, and we're gonna study these three, three different scenarios that caused exile, but my point is, is that God has a plan, and he's working his plan. He tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and over and over, the enemy is working to undo what God's command is. Over and over, every step of the way, we're gonna see God creates a cosmic garden. What happens? The enemy creeps in and deceives woman. They're, they're fulfilling their order, their God-given order in Egypt, and what's gonna happen in the very next verse? Pharaoh will oppress them. He will try to kill the, the, all of the males. God will always try to undo what the Lord is doing in your life. God's promises to you will be fulfilled. Mark my word. But that doesn't mean that the enemy doesn't want to stop it, doesn't want to delay it, doesn't want to divert it every step of the way. All right, let's talk about exile. Why, why did they have a need for an exodus? The first reason is the fall. And many of you, if you've never heard this, this is the foundation for the need of the gospel. The very reason Jesus came is connected to what I'm about to tell you this morning. If, you, if you've thought to yourself, whether online or in person, like, I have a sin nature. I have a propensity to do wrong. Anybody track with that? Anybody? Is it just me? Am I alone on that? I guess so. You all are such good people. <laughs> no, we're all sinners. Why are we all sinners? Because of what I'm about to tell you right here. In Genesis 3, it says this, now the serpent was more cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God has made. I, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this. I'd like to, but I don't. Uh, but this is a spiritual being. Uh, snakes don't talk, okay? Like, <laughs> does anybody have a talking snake? Anybody? Let's... Let's, let's charge admission. What do you think? I mean, we'll make some money on that. I, I mean, snakes don't talk, right? We read the Bible and then we're just like, oh yeah, uh, yeah back in the garden, all animals talked. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> is that what you thought? <laughs> and maybe you're right and I'm wrong, but the point is, is like, we don't have to like make exceptions for weird things because the Bible says it. We can actually dig in a little deeper and figure out what, what is it trying to say? Well, same, same word, snake, uh, Hebrew word. Uh, talk to Cody about it. He's better at the Hebrew words than I am. But the point is, is it's the same seraphim, same, same word that's used in other places to talk about a spiritual being. 
So regardless of whether he used the snake, which I'm more inclined, I'm more inclined to that, he used an animal to come upon and speak to the woman. He used a spiritual being, used a physical being in the physical realm to have a conversation with, with the woman. Does that make sense? She is not like, oh, snakes talk, and let me go see what my dog's doing and have a conversation. No. Uh, she understands the veil between the physical and the spiritual realm. She gets it. She knows that there are other spiritual beings that God created. She has an understanding of things that we do not, right? Uh, and, and she has an intimate view on how these things work. She walks her husband with God in the cool of the day. They commune with spiritual beings. The veil for the physical and the spiritual realm is just not really there the way that it is for us, right? So let's not make this into something it's not. She's having a conversation with someone who she clearly perceives as a spiritual being, whether using the snake or not. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and we know from Revelation that this is like, we perceive that this is Satan. This is the serpent, right? That language is then used again in Revelation. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch of it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, uh, who, who was with her, and he ate it. Typical woman, typical man. Mm -hmm. and then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman, <laughs> typical man, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat of the dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel, he said to the woman. I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, do not eat from. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and will uh, return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she is the mother of all living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and that's, we'll get into that probably next week, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, don't miss that, the man has become like one of us, there is an effort in the unseen realm. Paul says this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world. There is an effort for them to blur the line between God and human. 
They want humans to rise up and be like gods. Why? Because that's what they did. We know that there was a sense of pride. There was a sense of rebellion in the unseen realm where they rose up against Yahweh. So what do they do? They try to get back at Yahweh by going to humankind. The, the very uh, person, humans, we were created in God's image. And God wanted to dwell. God wanted to have community with us in his cosmic garden, in his cosmic temple. And how does the enemy drive a wedge? By trying to convince us to be like God. We just need to stay in our lane. You know what I mean? But this theme of saying, now you know some things that you shouldn't know. So what does God do? Knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat it, and live forever. So this tree in the garden, if you eat from it, you live forever. God says you cannot be in your fallen state and live that way forever. God has another plan to redeem or buy back, to set in order. He sent them away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken from. He drove man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way of the tree of life. The first reason there is a need for an exodus is because we are exiled from the fall. Adam's original sin, Adam and Eve, falling being exiled from the first cosmic temple, the sin that man has done that has separated them from God. Does anybody see it? Do you see it? Now mankind is pushed from the temple. The barrier has been created. The veil has been erected, and now we cannot commune in that way again. There's another one, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and I'm not going to wade in the weeds on this. You know my opinions. If you don't know, go back and listen to my Jude series. When mankind began to multiply, Jude, uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took and chose as wives for themselves. The Lord said, watch this, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. First one was the fall, Genesis 3. Here's the second one in Genesis 6. We were batting a thousand, weren't we? The spirit will not remain with mankind. They are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward where the sons of God came to the daughters of man who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Watch this. When the Lord saw that the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil, all the time, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Watch this. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. The first instance was the fall from the garden. The second instance was I believe to be fallen angels, fallen Elohim, however you want to look at it, mating with daughters of men, leaving their first estate, as the book of Jude says, creating their own human race. And what we see here is the Lord is saying, man, the, the earth is evil. The corruption is widespread. I'm going to wipe everybody off the face of the earth. And what does he do? He sees a man, Noah, that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Seems like another story. Noah, one dude and a family, right? One man that finds grace in an ark 
floating through the waters to preserve a human race and a people sounds like the children of Israel caught in exile in Exodus and one man God uses as he's born escapes the other babies dying in an ark, a small little reed floating down the Nile River. It's the same story. Noah, the story of Noah and his family, the story of Moses and the children of Israel. This is the same story. The second place, Genesis 3, the fall creates the separation. A further divide when the cosmic forces, the supernatural forces that we know are evil and we know are working and they divide man again from God. And what happens? The Lord uses a man through redemption. What's the third thing that I see? And this one, this is where we'll land today. And I'm gonna give you a little tidbit that literally blew my mind this week. I mean, it blew my mind. So do the heavy work with me, this last one, and then I'll give you a treat, and then we'll be back next week, okay? <laughs> I've been watching all these dog training videos, so that's where that came from. Anyway, <laughs> maybe I'm almost ready to get another one. We'll see. Here's the last one. This one will blow your mind. The Tower of Babel. This is the backdrop for exile. Why exile? Why God chose a specific nation? The fall, the Nephilim, the sons of God encounter. Number three, the Tower of Babel. Watch this one. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated, I promise you, we'll, we'll wrap up here nine, maybe 10 minutes. I might keep you one minute over, but sit tight, listen fast, okay? The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. This is Genesis 11. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they used a brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a what? Don't miss that. In the garden, because man is now like us, sons of God blurring the line again between the unseen and the seen, Genesis 6, now the, the fulfillment of the arrogance. I've never looked at this story this way. The fulfillment where, where God finally says, I was going to literally wipe them off the face of the earth, and we have this flood that eradicates all but the man that I found grace in my eyes, knowing his family, and here we are again. They've collected themselves, and they're so arrogant, they've, they've said that they're going to make a name for themselves. Don't they understand that my name is the only name that matters? Then the Lord came down, looked over the city, the tower that the humans were building, and the Lord said, watch this, if they have begun to do this, this is one people all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from their, uh, from their language, I'm sorry. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. I think some of your Bibles may say Babel. The Hebrew word is Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So don't miss this. The word Babylon means the gate of the gods. It's the gate of the gods. <laughs> Babel, the tower of Babel, is Babel just means confusion because the Lord created languages at that point. 
Both are necessary to understand the significance of this Tower of Babel or Tower of Babylon. The first effort, and, and many of you have heard this term Babylon being a picture of the world. The point is, is this is the gateway to serving other gods. This is the gateway where God finally says, you know what, enough is enough. If you want to serve other gods, if you want to make a name for yourself, go ahead. Here's the parallel passage, Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 12. Don't miss this. Same Pentateuch, right? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of past generations. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders, they will teach you. When the Most High, Yahweh, gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race and set boundaries of people according to the number of the people of Israel. What does that sound like? The Tower of what? The Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon. When God divided the human race, he gave them over to the gods of this world. But the Lord's portion is his people. What's the next name? Jacob. Come on, what's the next name? That's Israel. Jacob, his own inheritance, watch this. He found him in a desolate land, in a barren, howling wilderness. He surrounded him, cared for him, protected him as the pupil of his eye watches over him. His nest like an eagle hovers over the young. He spreads his wings, catches him, carries him on his feathers. The Lord alone led him with no help from a foreign God. The backdrop is one of fallenness which led to exile. He founds Jacob, who is Abraham, in exile and leads him out. As we continue to explore the roots of this exile, we will see that in Deuteronomy, Yahweh chooses Jacob or Israel as his portion. The beginning of that family or nation is seen in Genesis 11. Right after the story of the Tower of Babel, guess what's next? It's the genealogy of Abraham. Why is that? Let me help you with something. At the Tower of Babel, the Lord finally said, you know what? Lesser gods, all the other gods of the pantheon, you can have these men. I'm gonna choose what? One. God chose the children of Israel. What's the backdrop for that? The backdrop for that was the fall. The backdrop for that was the fallen angels incorporating and, and corrupting mankind. What's the backdrop for that? The final rebellion, the final act is when they say, let us make a name for ourselves. We will build to the gate of the gods. We will have a relationship again. We will create our own Eden, our own cosmic garden where we will rule with them. Do you think the gods were going to let men rule like that? Or do you think they were just using them as pawns to get back to God? They were never going to let them rule. Pharaohs are always pawns. And that's shown in the Egyptian story. Satan will always say, I'll partner with you. What did he say to Jesus at the mountaintop? I'll, I'll give you all of this. Every mountaintop experience is a, is a, is a attempt to partner with a God, a God of this world. And here's what God said, I am Yahweh. With no help from any foreign God, I will choose one nation to partner with and they will be my portion. Boom, story changes in Genesis 11. And it becomes about this guy named Abraham. 
This man, Abram, his genealogy right there in Genesis 11. Don't miss this. Oh my goodness, two minutes. Man, we landed just right. If you look at Genesis 11, I didn't paste this in there. This is so good. The Tower of Babel. If you look in your Bible, it says from Shem to Abraham. These are the family records of Shem right after the Lord scatters them. Why does the narrator do that? Here's why. You know Noah, Shem, Hem, and Japheth? The line of Shem, you know what the word Shem, the name Shem means? Does anybody know? Anybody want to take a wild guess? Here's what it means. Shem means literally the name. Every time man tries to make a name for themselves and at the garden when God finally says, I'm turning you over to the gods of this world, but I will choose one generation. I will choose one people and I will give them my name. Oh my goodness gracious. Mm. Go ahead, try to make a name for yourself. The gods of this world will lead you astray. They will give you enough rope to hang you on. What we're gonna talk about with Abraham next week will utterly blow your mind. It's unreal. But what had to be understood from the beginning is God is saying, I'm making this abundantly clear. You are in exile. Man is confused. Man is being led by the gods of this world. And I'm the only God that really matters. My name is the only name <laughs> that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in heaven and things in the earth. It's the same story. One will ultimately come and his name will be above every name. How do we know this? Right out of the gate in Genesis 11, God says, I'm choosing a people and they will be Shem. They will be the name. Oh my goodness gracious. Here's what I want to ask you. We end with this at 1230 on the dot. <laughs> Who are you trusting in? Who, listen, I mean it. The gods of this world are still after you. The fall, the Genesis 6 account, the Tower of Babel, the entire narrative of scripture is the Lord is coming to bring you out of exile. Abraham, <laughs> wait a minute, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, I leave you with this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance, the name, and he went out even though he did not know what, where he was going. Church, I would encourage you today as we begin this journey from exile together, there's one name that matters. You might not understand what he's doing in your life, but he's doing something. He's working and he's been working from the beginning. Thank you for watching and joining us for our church online. I pray this experience was just what you needed today. If you made a decision for the Lord to follow Christ, or if the Lord did something in your heart that was special today, we would love to hear about it. Post it in the comments, send us a message, and we'll reach out to you. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.